Central. This is Tech Radio. All things computers, gadgets and web happening right now in Ireland. Hear us anytime on iTunes or download from techcentral.ie. Central. How you doing? This is Dusty Rhodes. Welcome to Tech Radio. For 10 years, the number one Irish tech podcast bringing you the latest in tech from around Ireland and across the world. Remember, as well as our show on air with RTE and online via the website or your favourite podcasting app, we keep you bang up to date on all things tech every single day with hourly updates and daily newsletters, which you can grab for free at techcentral.ie. Joining me, as always, is our Tech Central uh, leader I'm going to go with today, Niall Kitson. <laughs> okay, fair enough. And uh, while the, uh, the interesting things going on in parliaments uh, the, across the world, uh, most notably, of course, uh, in the UK, but we're not going to talk mm-hmm. about that. Uh, what we are talking about is the National Broadband Plan <laughs> and what's going on with our own government and that. What's I love your response. I think I think that's so apt. Which... Just the fact that I put my head Just into my hands and went, oh, no. <laughs> and had a chortle. <laughs> but it is ridiculous because, I mean, give me the details. But from what I can gather, right, is that the government is saying, yes, let's go. And then the government's advisory committee is saying, start again. Do you know what? That is exactly what's happened. Uh, basically, the Oireachtas Committee on, uh, sorry, the Oireachtas Communications Committee issued its report and said, uh, do you know what? Yeah, we know you have a preferred bidder in Granaghan McCourt and we know you really want to get this deal signed as quickly as possible. But you know what? There's a few there's a few things back on the table and uh, we think you should look at it. And, you know, Fine Gael, it's basically been split along party lines. Fine Gael are like, no, nope, thanks for calling. Uh, while Fianna Fáil are like, no, we did this thing and it's really important. Uh, by the way, we're, we don't care enough to bring down the government over this, but look, you really should look at this. And the two preferred options that the committee have come back with are, oh, get, you can guess this. I mean, who who do you think the committee says is worth another look at? The, the, the people they're talking to all along. Okay, well, uh, go on, g- give me a brand. The, oh, God, no, don't tell me they're talking about going back to air, air again. They certainly are. Oh. Uh, the, the, this this wonderful act of trolling in Irish telecommunications. I mean, they already came in and took the cheap customers, and now they say they want to look after the the, the difficult ones as well. Load of nonsense. Um, but on the upside, uh, the uh, committee also recommended looking at our favourite wholesale provider, which is uh, that would be the the one with ESB and Vodafone. Cyro, yes, indeed. And uh, that's not a commercial endorsement, by the way. Um, but yeah, that's no, what... No, hang on, uh, sorry. The, the reason it's our favourite is because it's just so damn simple because they, tra- they, they do the internet via electricity wires. Infrastructure that already exists. Exactly. So we, we like it because it's a clever solution. Uh, whereas Air uh, are saying we can do it an awful lot quicker and we can do it on our network. By the way, uh, we're going to hang on to a lot of uh, the cash mm. uh, that goes through our network because technically you'd be leasing it back to us um, and we own it. So there. So, you know. So basically it, it rumbles on. It rumbles on the same things, the same problem. Uh, and the exact same response, only now we have a report to back it up. Okay, so it is, it, it is very similar to Brexit then, really, isn't it? <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> in many ways. <laughs> in many ways. Anyway, listen, uh, another great story coming uh, from uh, Sweden, I think it is, uh, about a school that tried facial recognition. 
Now, you you have serious hang-ups on facial recognition and a recent experience. I've, I've recent experiences, but tell me the story anyway that happened in Sweden first, because, I mean, this, this, is, this is school children we're messing with here. It is indeed, yeah. So this is the first um, GDPR uh, fine issued in Sweden, apparently. And uh, the municipality of, I'm going to get this wrong, Skelleftea? Skelleftea? I'll go with it. I'll buy it. Go on. Okay, they've been fined uh, $20,000-ish to 200,000 Swedish krona uh, for tracking 22 students over three weeks uh, and detecting when each pupil entered a classroom. So basically, if you could imagine um, a situation where you're concerned about certain students that, that have an issue with truancy, uh, they've this school was using facial uh, recognition technology to see when students were actually showing up. So uh, in a sense, it was um, uh, a solution to a problem, I guess. Um, And apparently this particular trial, they weren't looking to solve a particular problem, but they did secure parental consent uh, to monitor the students that they did. However, that wasn't good enough for the regulator. It was considered uh, intrusive that attendance could be detective, could be detected uh, in this way. And uh, yep, you fine. Okay, and then look at the, the other side. In order to get the facial recognition of these 22 students, whatever it was, they would also have to know, uh, they would also have to photograph and analyse the faces of every other student in the school. Well, there you go. I mean, how do you separate mm. people from the crowd? It, uh, well, listen, it's ridiculous. I saw a demonstration in Israel of facial recognition that would scare the pants off you. Really? Yes, the, the, the demonstration was, you know, these are people entering a football ground. So you're talking about 55,000 people who have not been on the system, all being photographed as they are coming in, having their faces analysed and being put into a computer and then tracked as they move around the stadium. Right. Okay. With that <laughs> level of accuracy. And because it's the Israelis. <laughs> oh, Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of accuracy in there. It, it was very, very scary. And then there's also, you know, the simple things. A, a lot of people are giving out about the uh, the public services card here in Ireland. Uh, I had a recent experience going for my driver's license where I went in and I had my photograph taken, uh, as they want to do now. And uh, they insisted that I, I took my glasses off. Oh, Which, oh, for shame. Well, I was just... Kind of, people think that I'm just being silly, but all I'm thinking in my head is, all right, so now a government department is taking my photograph and is going to put that into some kind of a computer system where it will be available for facial recognition at some point in the future. Do I like this? No, I don't. Do I want a okay. driver's license? <laughs> well, I think you do. <laughs> no, precisely. But th- th- that's what I'm saying. It's kind of a lot of these are, are things like this being done. It's like the public services card, you know, kind of in the news over the last two weeks. They're kind of saying, well, you know, kind of, yeah, if you're dealing with that particular department, it's fine. But sharing the information with other departments is not fine. Yeah. Here's and it's been question. going on for years. And this is the government. that th- These are the yeah. people you're supposed to trust. Okay, well, here's a question for you, hmm. right? And it's a, it's more of a, a, you know, something to mull over. When you're getting your picture taken for an official document, is it more important to have a picture taken of your face, you know, as it is in its natural state, if you will, you know, without glasses or, you know, any sort of defining pieces of jewellery or anything like that? Hmm. Uh, is that more important than having a picture taken of you as you will be seen actually interacting with other people, right? Because you've got glasses, 
when people see you, they, you know, they, they talk to the guy with the glasses, right? Now, listen, Is it more I, I, important? I'm not pursuing this conversation anymore because then we get into the territory of before you have your photograph taken, should you shave off your beard? Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> that's a good one. You see, <laughs> I knew we'd be opening up a tin of worms there. <laughs> so no, facial recognition. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm, I think it's an amazing technology. Uh, I'm not. I'm not a particular fan of it, but uh, I, I understand that maybe it could be good for catching the bad guys or whatever. Uh, I think that's very interesting in Sweden. What made what made me smile about the story from Sweden is that that is the first ever fine in the country because they're really good at two shoes up there, aren't they? They're very good at things in general. <laughs> it's, go. it's a shame that I came down to a public body instead of uh, a sure, private interest, but there you go. So that's the news. Niall, our leader, thank you very much. This is Tech Central, your weekly tech podcast from Ireland's techcentral.ie. You might remember the heady days of 2011 when a small group of hackers defaced the websites of the Sun newspaper and PBS and others and dumped user data like email addresses and passwords on public forums. For a short period at the time, LulzSec seemed to be able to attack corporate and public sector websites to devastating effect until the group itself was tracked down by law enforcement agencies in the US, the UK, Australia and here in Ireland. It's now eight years later, but have we learned anything about security? Niall Kitson sat down with former LulzSec member and current security researcher Mustafa Al-Bassam and started by asking if LulzSec was a young man's mischievous protest or was it something bigger? Well, no, I was the only one that was 15, 16. Everyone else was pretty, was, well, actually everyone else was over 18. But yes, everyone else was young in the sense that they were like 18, 20, and there was one who was 30. But I wouldn't describe it as a young man's rebellion because actually a lot of the people that were kind of noticing LSEC and cheering it on to some extent is the wider information security uh, industry and information security professionals who've kind of, when they were younger themselves, have played around with technology and noticed that there's a lot of low-hanging fruit that can be easily exploited and hacked, but could never prove it themselves because they have too much to lose, i.e. they could lose their jobs. And when you're looking at that kind of low-hanging fruit and, and well, what you consider to be such, um, we're not talking about, you know, massive intrusion into heavily fortified data fortresses or anything like that. The, this really is fairly simple elementary stuff that organizations just weren't looking after. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we had many different high-profile organizations, but it wasn't really so much as a testament to show that we were great hackers. It was more something that showed that all of these organizations didn't have really good security. So when we're looking at the kind of places that were um, that were targeted, for, for want of a better word, um, one company comes up and keeps coming up in, in the conversation, and that's Sony. What was particularly bad about Sony? Well, I think, um, well, there's several aspects to it. So, I mean, first of all, I think Sony is kind of like a classic kind of hacktivist hacker target for many reasons. First of all, it's a huge corporation, and they've kind of annoyed a lot of um, kind of the wider kind of hacker community and information security community with uh, previous scandals, such as the, um, the, the, the rootkit scandal, where they were inserting rootkits into all of their music CDs, or for example, when they tried to sue George Hotz for breaking the PlayStation. But the interesting thing about Sony is that 
because they were such a huge organization, they had a lot of, kind of external facing web properties. They had, you know, for example, a website for every single movie that they had, that they were, Sony Pictures was releasing, or every single TV show. So there was just such a huge, huge kind of attack vector, attack surface for hackers to come in and exploit. And a lot of these web properties and applications that they had, um, they had very basic uh, vulnerabilities, like SQL injection. So when, yeah, you know, we're looking at Sony, but there is also, you know, there's much wider range of targets for uh, as well. I mean, you're looking uh, into the media sector, into gaming, but also into state agencies. So how did that, um, how did the public sector compare to the private sector? Or was it a case of fairly lax practices across the board? I would say, yeah, it's fairly, pretty much fairly lax practices across the board. I mean, um I think one of the uh, organizations that we compromised uh, in regard Atlanta, which was like a, a organization that brings together the private sector with the FBI. Um, a lot of FBI agents had logged into or registered to this kind of organization. And a lot of them were using really basic passwords that like 16456, um, which was against the FBI handbook. So I would say both sectors are, I mean, pretty much equally bad um, at security, especially, I think the reason why people think that uh, public sector tends to be worse at security isn't so much because of the fact that it's public sector, but I think it's more that um, public sector organizations tend to be bigger, so the attack surface tends to be higher or larger, but we also can experience the same with uh, private sector organizations that have a huge attack factor, like Sony, as we've seen. Do you think there is a sense that, you know, the larger the organization you work for, the more you assume that it is better protected? No, I think, as I said, it's the opposite. Um, the larger the organization, the easier it is to compromise, because simply because the attack vector is, is larger. There's more kind of points to attack. There's more people that you can attack. There's more employees that you can try to social engineer. Uh, there's more servers to try to exploit. Um, well, one example of that was um, one of the organizations you compromised uh, was the Westboro Baptist Church, which is this really small church in America. It's a really controversial church. And um, that, that church was harder to compromise. It was harder to compromise than Sony, um, simply because they were a much smaller organization, so there was less things to attack. So when you're, just to step back a little bit in time, uh, you are sort of, uh, even at the stage of getting involved in LulzSec, which is, what, eight years ago now, I mean, you had been involved in computers since you were seven or eight, really, weren't you? Uh, yeah, I mean, I learned programming from an early age, uh, maybe when I was 10 or 9. But I think that's a kind of a very common story. I think a lot of young people, when they discover a computer for the first time, they kind of get into programming from an early age, simply because it's so easy to learn programming just by going on Google or any search engine and looking for tutorials. That seems to be the uh, the mood now that it's uh, very much... Uh, 
for want of um, a better term, an, an open access or an open source activity that it's so much easier to teach yourself to code. Um, do you think more uh, young people are sort of growing up with a, a similar mindset that that you had, maybe that, you know, there's this skill out there, let's learn as much as possible? Um, I feel that that kind of mindset is becoming more and more rare. Uh, not, be, not necessarily because the nature of young people these days are changing necessarily, but I think it's more so more the fact that computers uh, and the way that we use computers are changing. Um, for example, um, a lot of young people are more likely to have, for example, tablets nowadays, or even Windows 10, for example, it kind of abstracts away the kind of interface that you need to really dig, dig down into and encourage you to program. So, for example, when I first got into computers, um, I had there was a, there's a piece of software called Microsoft Front Page installed, where that lets you create websites, and you can see the source code behind that website, the HTML source code as you as you made it with the editor. But now we don't really get that um, with computers. Now people have tablets, which make it very difficult to program in. Or I would say it's more of a consumer-based kind of culture rather than a creation-based culture, I think, especially with social media and whatnot and, and um, online gaming. How do you feel this has a knock-on effect to how people approach security then if they're coming to technology with a mindset that doesn't really have security to the fore? If you've set up, for example, your Apple account and that might be you know, the last password you need to think about because all your other services of choice feed into it. Do you think that people will be less security savvy if they don't have to go around generating new passwords? Or do you think people will develop better password hygiene in that they might start thinking, okay, well, I've only got one service. I haven't changed my password in a little while. It's time to revisit it and change it. Do you you think that that overall attitude to security is evolving or is it a case of people are still setting up one password maybe using it across multiple services and leaving it at that so i think um as people who design computer systems we can't expect or even uh, design systems so that to to rely on users to deal with their security not only because um, it's a, that's a bad idea in the sense that they won't do it, but also because it's, it simply shouldn't be their job. Users should, should, simply should not have to um, worry themselves so much about security. And I think in cases where users have to worry a lot or proactively think about how to be secure, that's not a failure of the users. That's a failure of the people who designed these systems in the first place. I mean, for example, um, the tradition that we have to authenticate to websites with passwords, that itself is a terrible kind of interface, if you like, from a security perspective, and that's not the user's fault. So what I guess what I'm saying is that we shouldn't try to create a culture, in my opinion, where, we expect, where, where the burden of security is placed on users. The burden of security should actually be placed on um, the people who are designing these systems, so that it should design it to make it very difficult for users to use them insecurely. And I think in the context of passwords, a really good example of that um, is, for example, two-factor authentication. If you require users to use two-factor authentication, they don't really have to think that hard about 
creating a new password everywhere or creating, you know, it's really about having a strong password because defect authentication is very difficult to mess up if you were using. I think uh, the point there of two-factor is is absolutely essential, uh, especially when we're looking at new technologies like quantum computing that can effectively render the, the entire idea of a password obsolete. Are you concerned about developments like this? Uh, well, I mean, you mean in terms of quantum computing, I'm not a, I don't have a lot of knowledge about quantum computing, but as far as I can understand, it doesn't really fundamentally change the nature of security. I mean... For example, when it comes to cryptography, um, there's still the ex- our existing cryptography will be, become obsolete, but there will still be such thing as post-quantum cryptography, which is cryptography that is resistant to um, quantum computing. Mm. So when we were looking at um, the the effect that uh, LulzSec had all those years ago, the tactics that you actually used uh, were quite interesting. One of them, uh, and this goes back to your experience with Anonymous, was the use of denial of service uh, attacks. And part of that um, uh, was for Anonymous, but part of it, I guess, the, the more... Um, humorous part of it was when you started working uh, with and on behalf of the Pirate Bay. So can you tell us a little bit about how you got into that element of um, uh, of protest, I suppose you call it? Sure. So, I mean, um, this was back in 2010, 2011, when launching a denial of service attack or distribute denial of service attack was kind of seen as a new form of protest, kind of like a virtual sit-in. I mean, just like in the 50s or, or before before the 50s, um, well, I think 30s, actually, uh, in the U.S., people used to do protests by doing sit-ins. For example, you might, have to, you might do a sit-in in a restaurant, for example, um, and sit in all the seats, and that would basically block the restaurant from being able to serve anyone. And that was kind of seen as a, as a form of protest. So... Um, with denial of service, that could be seen a similar thing. If you get huge masses of people uh, that volunteer their computer to be part of a, like a voluntary botnet to launch a denial of service attack against the website, then that could also be seen as a kind of virtual sit-in. Uh, and one of the other tactics that you're um, uh, associated with was SQL injections, basically um, changing what people saw when they log on to a website. Can you tell us, uh, can you take us through how that process worked? Right. So you mean defacing um, web pages? Exactly. So, yes. So I think we use that tactic in, a, in various use cases. Um, simply, usually we use it when there isn't much value in the data that was compromised from compromising that website. But there's more value in simply defacing that website to embarrass that organization, for example. Um, one, one, for example, we did that during the Tunisian Revolution, during the Arab Spring, to deface the website of the Prime Minister of Tunisia with a kind of pro-revolutionary message. But we also, it's also been used in humorous ways, for example, um, when we compromise PBS to put a fake news article on their front page to say that Tupac was found still alive um, in New Zealand. 
So this is um, uh, this is all sort of uh, kind of mischievous stuff that that we're talking about. But there was a serious end as well, particularly when it came to um, uh, finding or, or you know um, databases with emails and passwords and leaking them online. So this is part of how I say that you know it was a, a young man's uh, rebellion um, because it's not. Um, it was criticised by some people in the hacker community as being quite an immature thing to do. How did how did you guys? Um, uh, appreciate or what was the reasoning behind that was it was it frustration was it looking to make mischief um, tell us a, a little bit about what was going on inside the group I think uh, one of the motivations was to simply um, kind of show people that there was a lot of low hanging fruit out there and a lot of these organisations weren't securing people's data properly because in many cases, if we simply email these organizations like Sony and told them, hey, you have a security vulnerability in your, in your systems um, and all of your customers' data is being exposed to hackers, in most cases, um, for many of these organizations, back in 2010, they wouldn't really do anything about it or they, they might fix it, but they wouldn't, they wouldn't inform their customers so their customers are none the wiser. And in the meantime, there's probably financially motivated hackers who've already uh, stolen all that information and are being is being and using them for financial gain. So I guess the purpose of leaking all these databases was to kind of really show people that this information that you're entrusting to all of these organizations is not secure. And to a large extent, it worked. One thing that has happened since, um, uh, I, I guess... Uh, it's a recent development compared to what, what we're talking about previously is the arrival of the General Data Protection Regulation. Um, do you think, are you optimistic that this is a measure that will work towards pr- protecting user data? Or do you think it's a case of companies with um, unsecure practices will continue with those practices until they're caught out, either by a, a lulsec or, or by a, a disgruntled employee? I think uh, I don't know. I think GDPR is relatively a good piece of regulation, and even though it's the case that um, many organisations might not follow it immediately, but I think I think in the long term they will, and it is a good thing because I have seen even um, small organisations have actually taken a great deal of care in terms of complying with GDPR. So I think it's not just the large organisations; it's also small organisations that are actually kind of waking up. And, say, and thinking, hey, we have there's a serious regulation that we have to abide by. Mm. And looking uh, towards the future and sort of the the broader cultural effect that Lulsec had, and um, what sort of problems do you do you still consider concerning out there? Be it a new threat or old threats that just haven't been taken seriously enough. I mean, I think um, compared to ten years ago or even 20 years ago, the, most, the threats that we're facing today haven't really changed that much. Um, I think they're largely the same threats. I would say the only difference is that they're being applied maybe in different contexts. So, for example, today, maybe um, Internet of Things devices are more prevalent, but those devices are still vulnerable to the same kind of vulnerabilities or threats that we had a decade or two ago. 
And that was Niall Kitson talking with former Lulsec hacker and security researcher Mustafa Al-Bassam. Mustafa will be the guest at this year's Secure Computing Forum on September the 12th at the RDS in Dublin. You can find out more about that online at securecomputingforum.ie. That's almost it for the show this week. Just before we go, Niall's still with us. Do we have one more thing, something we couldn't get into the podcast but is on our website? Yeah, sure. Something uh, really interesting coming from Lero, which is the Art Software Research Centre backed by Science Foundation Ireland. Uh, they're getting into esports. Mm, you can get the lowdown on that and all things tech in Ireland with hourly updates, daily newsletters and more at our website techcentral.ie or of course listen to us each week online or Fridays on DAB Digital Radio with RTE Radio 1 Extra. Until next time, from myself, Dusty Rhodes and from Niall Kitson, have a great weekend. Get Tech Radio. Subscribe for free with iTunes or download on demand at techcentral.ie. Tech Radio is produced by digitalaudioproductions.com. Tech Central.